0: 3CR and Stick Together would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land which we are broadcasting on today, and we're broadcasting on the lands of the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of this land, and we want to pay our respect to their elders, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we are living and working on stolen land. Always was, always will be. Thanks a lot for tuning in. My name's James Brennan, and this week's edition of Stick Together, as always, is brought to you uh, by 3CR and the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. And Stick Together is the only national program that focuses on union news, worker stories, and social justice issues. And this week, I'm speaking to Jerry Beaton, who's a retired teacher and TAFE educator. And we're going to be continuing our discussion on the Australian education system. Are really trying to get to the heart of how did Australia go from being this great education system that perhaps many of the listeners have grown up with, you know, we're told this real gold standard, something that people around the world looked to. And indeed, you know, lots of people came have come to Australia in order to seek that education, whether that be at a primary and secondary level or up to TAFE and university level. What's happened? You know, what how are we being left behind here, where Australia has gone from that standard to the one that we're left at today? And I really want to look at some of the things around our curriculum. We have, you know, heard about this homogenization of the school curriculum across the country is almost. Exactly the same, no matter where you are being educated. And also, you know, what are the teachers being asked to do? We know that there's a really difficult period over the last few years in terms of COVID uh, and the restrictions for teachers to have to teach from home and how they're going to move in this next little period of really trying to bring students back from a really difficult uh, place where they've had to learn. We're going to cover some of those things perhaps in a future episode. But what we're going to be talking about today is, is really looking at one of the things that I think they're thinking about some of the issues with the education system today, and really going to be focusing on funding from the federal and state governments. And what is a really big issue is the golf in funding from public and private schooling. And the huge increase over the last 20 to 30 years that has gone towards private and religious schools and how that money is being taken away from public schools. Okay, everyone, uh, welcome to Stick Together for another week. And on this week, we're going to be continuing our deep dive into the education system in in Australia And this week, I'm going to be speaking with Jerry Beaton, who's a retired TAFE and high school teacher. Jerry, thanks a lot for joining us on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, James.
0: Jerry, I wonder um, before we kind of get into—I know you've got a real passion for looking at some of the funding for private schools and that gulf between you know private and public education. But before we kind of get into all of that, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got started in your early roles as a teacher and educator.
1: Yeah, well, I actually that school, and only had my year 10 certificate and I bummed around in various jobs. I worked in a bank, I drove trucks, I worked in a pub, I was a builder's labourer, so I thought I needed to get some qualifications. So I went back to night school and did my year 12 at night school and then got a um, studentship to study and become a teacher at... Um, and went through and did my BA and Dip out at Monash. Do
0: you think that you know that pathway that you had, which is not you know, I guess a traditional type pathway of finishing high school and going to do teachers' college or university sort of things? Now, how did that shape you as an educator?
1: Uh, look, I, I think that my years, you know, I worked for about eight years before I went to uni. I think that that was the best thing I could have done in terms of reality of where the students are going to when they leave when they leave high school. Um, some, some, a lot of teachers had very good experiences. At high school, then very good experiences at uh, university, and then went into um, high school teaching, expecting that uh, with that belief in the back of their head that you can. It's easy to uh, have those experiences and made dif- relating to kids who were not so uh, you know um, committed to the education. It made them the relationships between those uh, teachers uh, a bit hard. Mm.
0: And so, you know, that time when you first started teaching, can you describe what were the classrooms like then, and what was the life like for a teacher at that time?
1: Well, I, st- I started uh, at uh, Pembroke High School out in the Nannyongs in '75. It was a joy teaching there. Uh, it was an extremely young staff, and that was the case, the case right across as the, the governments were madly employing teachers. The VSTA, which was the Secondary Teachers Union, was was strong in the branch that I, at the school that I was in was very strong. And we basically controlled the day-to-day operations of the school. We controlled the curriculum. We actually had control who was employed. The, the VST at that stage had a control of entry policy. It was because the state government was trying to employ unqualified teachers. So a new teacher would come into the school, someone from the executive of the Union sub branch would ask them to show evidence of uh, a qualification and a teaching qualification, and if they couldn't do it, then the principal was told that if this person was given any teaching duties, there'd be industrial action, and and um, if they if a the principal went ahead and gave those people classes, we would just walk out of the school, mm-hmm. leave the principal with uh, you know 800 kids and about you know three or four scabs have welded a really powerful um, force inside the uh, education system of that stage. Of course, uh, unions have now been under vicious attack over that period of time by governments, both Labor and Liberal. And uh, that sort of um, control is, has now been lost by, out of the hands of the uh, day-to-day operations of teachers and schools. have now been handed into the pockets and hands of the bureaucrats at the central office of the union. And their commitment to, uh, you know, they're so far removed, it's seen a deterioration of that. The The, the VSTA at that stage, the, the first sector of their uh, constitution said that the main purpose of the union was to improve the standard and quality of state education in Victoria. And the second one was that it would look after the conditions of the, of the members. So there was always a strong interest in curriculum matters um, and the way that programs were delivered uh, was part of what we saw ourselves as, as, a, as an industrial organisation.
0: Changes that you saw yourself in your career for the, in terms of union membership and, um, you know, your involvement in that union?
1: Well, that, that um, thing I mentioned earlier about the control of entry, uh, being able to maintain the professional standards and qualifications and education of teachers themselves was a big help in in building the union because um, there was nothing of gain for the other teachers in the in the school. It was purely in order to ensure that there were professional teachers delivering the program. And I think that it um, people who you know mostly weren't uh, well that union orientated, but were strong educators were won over by by that. But the other thing, when I first started teaching, the the um, the the, teach, the branch the school would have a things called a conditions case. So they'd write a letter. And at the top of the letter was listed down a whole range of demands that they would put under the administration of the school, including class sizes, mm-hmm. uh, how many hours of face-to-face teaching a teacher would do, what you would the time allowance you get being coordinator, how the process of delivering, pointing these positions would be, and amongst other things. And it would be given to the principal and at the bottom of it was a signature of everybody who was willing to take industrial action if these conditions were broken. So at the bottom of the letter was said that the, the following the people who have signed this letter uh, saying to you that if you breach any one of those people's conditions, uh, then we will take industrial action. It was handed to the principal. There was no negotiation. It was just given to the principal. And this, this was, uh, it was like a fait complete. This is what's going to happen. And it worked. Uh, if someone was uh, had their conditions breached, we'd go and see the principal. say, so this person's got 27 students in that class. This is not viable. We want you to, to rearrange the classes so that... that uh, that doesn't happen. If the principal refused it, then we would just walk out of the school and leave the principal. And sometimes, uh, with the 800 kids, the principal and deputy principal and a couple of leading teachers, senior teachers, would have to take them, all the kids out and put them on an oval and, and just leave them down there because of the inability to maintain the, the, the program. So that was, it, it gave power to the to the teachers in the school at an unbelievable level. it was very exciting if you like because of the yeah. fact that uh, it did that and then what happened was your uh, a, a rank and file group i was involved with who thought that uh, the best way of making sure their conditions were maintained and improved would be to do a centrally uh, organized um, like an eba like a claims on the government for an annual general meeting of the union it got passed through what happened was that the uh, bureaucrats at that time grabbed it and ran with it because they realised that by them controlling it, it gave them control over what was going on. And uh, despite our subsequent attempts to uh, introduce a um, sort of rank and file committee that was going to look after the negotiations, we were never successful and it just became bureaucratised. And then the, the bureaucrats of the union just took it over and, and uh, ran it as a sort of you know a talk fest with the government about trying to improve conditions. But it, it was that point on really that the powers within power of the Rank and file teachers in the classroom were diluted as a consequence.
0: Well obviously that a lot of private schools, religious schools have been around for a very long time. Now, what's changed in terms of the, the funding of what you would assume private School, like any private enterprise, should be, uh, you would assume, paid for by that private entity and those that use that service and public education and public systems are paid for by the taxpayers through the government. How much has that changed and that funding shifted over the past or in your, unbelievable. your time? It's, it's, it's unbelievable,
1: the change. Unbelievable. I've done a comparison study of a school about the same size. And This one, one of the the public school in this case was in the news recently because of its size. It's, a, it's called Alam- Alamander K-12. So it goes from kinder to year 12. It's in um, Point Cook area in Western Melbourne. It's got uh, 3,000 students. And I'm comparing it with Wesley, one of the private schools in Melbourne, who've got 3,300 students. They're about the same size. Uh, the 3,000 public school is exceptionally large. I've never mm. heard of a public school of that size, but it's. I think it, that uh, where Vale area of uh, Melbourne is growing at a rapid rate and they just haven't provided the sufficient number of um, uh, schools there. So at the, the public school, with a teaching with a population of have got 166 teachers. Wesley has 422. The public school has got additional staff. So that'd be, you know, office staff, um, library staff, science technicians, groundskeepers. Yeah, of 52, 52 additional staff on top of the 166. Wesley's got 276. So Alamander's got um, 218 staff altogether. And Wesley has got 698 That's about double. Mm-hmm. Wesley's got an annual budget of $114 million. That's made up of government funding as well as, uh, as uh, fees and also then money from private foundations. I imagine that's old boys and know if there's any old girls from there yet, though it is co-ed at the moment. Uh, Wesley's got a uh, budget, $114 million a year. Alamander, $25 million. That's almost, it's almost five times the budget. It's over four. Wesley gets... 14 million dollars from um, state and federal governments and the public one gets 22 million so it's still not a huge difference when you when you look at it, the uh, support for the for the two schools so if you look at the funding that's gone on so i started teaching in 75 from 1975 to 1982 um, private um, funding of uh, funding of private schools went up 94% funding for government schools over the same period decreased by 12%. So what is happening there is that the federal government started putting money into public schools and the state government thought, beauty, that'll mean we can save money here, we'll just cut it it back. So it wasn't all what was happening in Canberra, but Canberra played a big part by um, the funding of private schools. And from 88 to 94, private school funding went up 42% and government funding went up 7%. So there's just been this huge increase in private school funding. And it's led to that situation, I was just describing before, the disparity between two schools one public, one private, about the same size, one spending 25 million, the other one spending 114 million you know, mm. as an annual budget. There's another example, a little school in Fitzroy called the Fitzroy Community School. It started off in a double story um, terrace place in Brunswick Street opposite the uh, Fitzroy footy ground. So I had a look at some stats on that. It's got 126 students in it and an income of 2.4 million. It gets $725,000 from government assistance. Now, this school has always existed just it's now extended. And in fact, it's just bought the Dan O'Connell Hotel, would you believe, which it's going to turn into a, a campus. It's got a school at the school in Brunswick Street and another one in Thornbury. Now, I had a look at the figures it said it has less deductions of three hundred thirty-one thousand dollars out of its budget of two point four million. Now I don't know what that deduction is, but that school's privately owned. And my suspicion is that's the cream that's being ripped off the top by the by the owners of the school. It's not it's not run by an by um, a church group or anything. It's just um, two private individuals. So I'm assuming that that pays for their salaries and. Amongst other things. A uh, school that
0: was uh, in had some controversy last year for encouraging their students to come to school even to during school. lockdown.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, arguing that old argument, which has got an element of truth to it, that the kids are better off at school. Because um, it's not going to, do, it's going to cause them psychological damage if they, if they don't get access. And there's an element of truth to that. Because the biggest joke of all this stuff about funding is that all the research shows that the, the, the single most significant thing that has a bearing on students' ability to do well in their secondary education is the socioeconomic status of the parents. The schools they attend to is irrelevant. The argument is that private schools do better. Then they need to explain why is it that you get um, students coming out of um, public schools who outperform private school. How does that occur? If, if, it's, if it's a general truth, because it's not, it's, it's, it's determined by the socio-economic status of the, of the parents. That Fitzroy Community School, when it first started, did not have a playground. There was no playground. The kids were inside that building the whole time. I think they used to run across over to the, when they knocked the wall down around the um, Fitzroy footy ground, they used to mostly go over and have a kick of the footy or whatever play sport over there. But for a long period of time, it didn't. And this is one of the things that Howard introduced, that, uh, that there was no criteria for determining whether a private school would get funding from the government. So all they had to do was register. Once they registered, that was it. Mm. We raised questions about the about the ability of that school to get registered in Victoria, but it was always knocked back and said it's not, not our business, it's done by the federal government.
0: It sounds similar to some of the, you know, pseudo TAFE kind of colleges that have sprung up over the past 15 years where they seem to be getting large amounts of government funding to offer community service diplomas that are completed in six weeks and things like that?
1: Yeah, well, there was, a, there was um, the final solution to an ongoing problem with a mob called Acquire Learning that um, uh, Dimitri, the ex-chief of the um, AFL, was a director of, mm-hmm. uh, it went down. After the federal government only only through huge amount of pressure stopped the um, ability of these private RTO registered uh, training organisations the ability to just sign up anybody and grab the money that they got for the course regardless of the outcomes. Mm. Um, so he had he had a 45 million dollar um, uh, bill presented to him by various. People that uh, acquired learning owed money to, including the tax department. I think he paid three hundred and sixty thousand of it, and got, got cleared up. So mm. it was a bad little effort. Take forty-five yeah. million, pay three sixty thousand back. It Not shows so.
0: uh, some of the loopholes and corruption within, uh, you know, that I guess successive kind of governments have been able to create. I think it's really great. Uh, thank you for providing that comparative studies. I'll go back to that, Jerry. And I wonder, you know, I, I guess the question that some people ask, you know, we're, it's all education, so why does it matter if private public education are being funded by the government. It's all about, you know, educating young people. But I think the example over the past few weeks we've seen in Brisbane with the Christian College and the enrolment contract that they had wanted students to, or parents to sign for their student, uh, is a really good example of you know, the lack of accountability that private schools have to the to the government, to the public about what they can and what they choose to do within their education structure. So do you think, you know, if, if the taxpayers are fronting so much of the money for the private schools, do you think that the public and the government should have a bit more of an input into what happens in the schools?
1: Oh, absolutely. Where where else did they spend money, give money hand over fist without sort of putting down a whole range of conditions about the way it's spent, the the, the hypocrisy of the highest order? Because they can hand money over to uh, that uh, mob that um, Turnbull handed over half a billion dollars to uh, to look after the Great Barrier Reef, I think it was $450 million with no contract, Mm. it wasn't tendered, nothing. Uh, And as far as I know, nobody's ever been... Uh, said boo about that since then but so um but is this is this the way they're going to go they're just going to hand money out without without any conditions so, i mean you've got the, the teachers in public private schools have to be vit registered so there's now at least they can't just get bring in any tom dick and harry to, to take classes and i think that they're also registered with a central registration system um and that brings with them various various uh, commitments that we've got to make the information on the my school website that's um you know the stuff where I got those comparisons of those two schools, the schools have to provide that sort of information. Now overall, that the, the money—I mean, there is money that's awarded for capital works, and then there's money that's awarded for you know ongoing expenditure of the schools. But the within the schools itself, once they get it, there's very little uh, oversight by the government about what's what's happened to it. And in fact, now, for a period of time now, I've been calling these private schools for for-profit private schools because they used to actually, and I noticed it was interesting when I just looked up the my website, website the other day, they used to have a part where they talked about the surplus of money that they had at the end of the year after they'd received all the money from the state and federal government and fees and, and what are what other else and how much was left over, that, which, you know, they called about surplus money. Well, it's what I call profit. Yeah. Um, now, I noticed that this uh, the, 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 that's not being presented uh, now there's that money that's taken out um, for um, was it other expenditures or other—I can't remember the exact word—they said—mention uh, it as a surplus. What, what happens to that surplus? No, no one knows. Uh, you know, the, when when uh, school councils present um, their um, records, public school councils, public schools, to the government, if they—if a—if a school is cashing money away, left, right, and centre. Uh, the educational department get on in a flash and say, you need to start spending this money, otherwise we're going to deduct it from your next year's amount. They won't allow Mm -hmm. schools to to do that. Uh, Private schools, they run under their own laws.
0: What do you think, just going to wrap up in a moment Jerry and thanks so much for all that you've shared today i wonder if you know what do you think the role you know what impact do you think this is having broadly on you know the rest of society on young people that are being educated and, and growing up with uh this kind of you know real gap in funding and and you know the difficulties within the education system what what impact is that having for young people as they grow up and mature into young adults
1: um well you yeah, know the vast majority of the uh, students who have who need extra help for various reasons, uh, attend uh, public schools. They don't, they're not in the private system. Now, yeah, the, the private school advocates say, well, you know, you've got basically the same number of um, teachers per, you know, the same size classrooms as what, as what public schools have. And they are, they're about the same, you know, 20 to 25. But the significant difference is that um, a public school class of You know, 25 might have a certain number of kids that need extra help one way or another. Whereas the same size, the same group of kids in a public school, private school would be much smaller in number. So the consequences are that there's mostly a a number of kids that are coming through who need that extra support and help aren't getting it, and this is only because of the fact that the government's not resourcing the schools uh, sufficiently the only reason if the schools had the money they would they would bring in uh, extra staff to be able to work you know either one to one or work in a classroom whatever the whatever the um, the, the uh, school saw as the best approach but they would be able to throw resources at problems and you know you, you hear these you hear these uh, federal ministers for education constantly talking about it doesn't matter about money it doesn't matter about money money's not the issue and in fact jeff spring it was the the uh, hatchet man that Kenneth brought down to destroy the public education system in Victoria said that it didn't matter how much uh, kids you had in classroom. a classroom. A good teacher could have 30 kids in a tent and they would get good results. Well, there's an element of truth to that, but it's also
0: an element. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I don't imagine that the politicians want to want to work with those kind of conditions themselves. But, you know, what what kind of, um, I guess, just to, to finish up, you know, what, what can we see, like, what kind of things, a campaign that could really change this, do you think, you know, I imagine that there's some real difficulties for teachers, uh, you know, that may be working in the, in the um, public system to be having a campaign, you know, with the union around these kind of issues, because they may feel like, you know, they're kind of going up against their comrades in, in other schools. And, you know, they don't it's a difficult kind of balance, I guess, to be talking about this while they don't want to take away the impact for their, you know, yeah, comrades working in other schools.
1: Well, um, the solidarity that the teachers show with each other is is um, it's fantastic, and, and and people in public schools know that they're they're under resourced. They understand. They understand what's what's, what's, uh, what's occurring. The the difficulty is that you know um, I don't know. Thirty years ago, the 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 uh, AEU the Victorian branch of the AEU was the only branch in the in the Australian Teachers Federation that still had opposition to uh, state aid, and that was rammed through by uh, then through the AEU uh, State Council. I was a member of that State Council by Brian Henderson and Mary Blewett, the, the little duo that ran the AEU for a long period of time, just to keep them in line with what was happening in the state. Well, once that was done, uh, any opposition to uh, the unit inequality of uh, funding was gone, and 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 in fact you know just increased dramatically under Howard uh, and could the out of free you know the, the unions weren't going to do anything about it what's what's going to stop me let's go mm. the um the issue of the issue of a campaign now against state aid is fraught with difficulty because of the because, because of the such a huge number of kids now that have been taught in private schools 35% of Victorian kids go to private schools mm. um, and you know those parents parents of those kids are going to going to arc up all of a sudden that money's withdrawn or some of it or whatever And there's, you know, at various stages, there's been attempts to fiddle around the edges of it and take some money and the peak bodies for the Catholics and the independent teachers, independence, uh, you know, the cutting back of the funds, I'm paying my taxes, I've got a right to this, et cetera, et cetera, all the arguments that they put forward, got nothing to do with education, more to do with greed. Mm
0: -hmm. You would think with the huge amounts that uh, parents do pay to send their, their children to private schools, that the schools would be able to manage that. Funding to, to pay for all of the things that they need to.
1: Well, you know th- those figures I gave you for Wesley is a good example. Mm. The the, um, the fourteen million they get off the of the uh, federal government with the Buddy beer money for it, whereas for that years, money distributed to over over government schools would be invaluable. I think
0: um, so. Wesley years ten to twelve student fees are over thirty four thousand per student. So, you know, you'd imagine that that would be able to cover most of that expense without needing to lean so much on the government. Mm. Jerry, it's been really great to um, talk to you today. Um, That's that's all we've got time for, unfortunately, but I really appreciate it's really great to hear different voices uh, talking about not just their experience in the education system, but to be able to put that into some of the understanding of the um, theory and and understanding of the, you know, where the funding and and everything's coming from and trying to make sense of it all. And I hope that, you know, throughout the series, we're um, putting all these pieces together to to paint a bit of a picture of what's happening in Australian
1: education system. Uh, My pleasure, mate. Up in the morning and
2: out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule american history and practical man you study him hard hoping to pass. working your fingers right down to the bone and the guy behind you won't leave you alone ring ring goes the bell the cook the lunchroom's ready to sell you're lucky if you can find a seat you're fortunate if you have time to eat your books. Keep it the teacher, don't know i mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. Down the halls and into the street. Up to the corner and round the bend. Ride to the juke, John, you go in. of the slot you gotta hear something that's really hot with the one you love you making romance all day long you've been wanting to dance feeling the music from here Hay- and roll deliver me from the days of old don't live rock and roll the beat of the drums loud and bold rock, rock rock and roll feeling is there body and soul
0: and that was chuck berry with school days and at Track for this series that we are recording, and you've been listening to stick together. Uh, We always bring you workers' stories, union news, and social justice issues. And unfortunately, that's the end of this week's program but if you want to catch up with the program but if you want to catch up with this show or any of the other episodes please head along to 3cr.org.au or wherever you listen to your podcast you can always grab a copy there if you'd like to contact any of the producers of the show you can go to sticktogether3cr at gmail.com my name's james brennan and remember wherever you are whatever you do there's a union for you until next time stick together